Welcome to my kitchen and uh, welcome to the podcast, Radical Simple Living, episode 14. I'm here with my cats and a crackling fire in the background, so those are the natural noises of my kitchen that you will hear. It's also incredibly windy outside today and I have to warn you that if you keep cats you will know that nothing spooks cats as much as a bit of wind. So they're, they're, they're sitting here trying to get to sleep. Cats are, are usually asleep or trying to get to sleep uh, with their ears back because they can hear the wind in the trees outside. So I hope they're not going to be too much of a problem. One looks like they could be, so uh, I have to warn you of that. Now, if you're returning, it's good to see you back. If you're a first-time listener, uh, welcome and do look at my back catalogue and uh, see if there's anything there that will interest you. It's helpful to everybody if you subscribe and that way you can be sure of hearing when a new edition is posted. I'm not a regular poster like every Wednesday or every Sunday or something like that. I tend to wait till I've got something to say and then post it which means sometimes uh, it's just two days after the previous post and sometimes it's a week. It's never longer than that. Today's podcast is really coming from people that have contacted me since I started doing these podcasts about how they approach simple living and a big barrier that many people see to them even getting started on simple living. Last episode was all about limiting factors, reasons why people feel they can't live simply. And so today we're tackling one of those and it's the problem of growing food. Now most people that seem to feel that they have an enormous problem with growing food is because they quite simply haven't got any land. They're living in an apartment, that's a a flat in in UK and Ireland, um, and they don't have access to land at all but they would like to grow their own food. And and sometimes people get irritated because they see me doing social media posts about um, digging up your lawns and growing vegetables or feeding yourself and becoming more self-sufficient, and they feel excluded. Well, I don't think self-sufficiency should ever be about excluding people, and radical simple living is in itself inclusive. Everybody can live more simply, and that includes those that live in cities. Now, if you're listening to this and think, well, I've got a lot of land, I don't need to listen. All of these things that I'm going to mention today that people can do to produce food wherever they live, I do. And I've got access to land, but I still do all these other things as well, with the exception of one. And I'll tell you about that when when it comes to it. But you can always improve the amount of food you grow you can extend the seasons of food you grow. I'm an outside gardener, but I live in Sweden. So in the middle of January, I'm an indoor gardener. It's as simple as that. So there are always things we can do. And I'm gonna start off with some simple things and move into some more complex things. So hold with me if if you think you already do the simple things and we'll take it from there. Now, I suppose one of the complaints that people would have about not having land is any amount of food I grow is going to be minuscule. It's going to be so small, it's not going to really affect um, 
the amount I spend at the supermarket or at the farmer's market because I've still got to buy the bulk of my food. And you have. But the way around that is by growing some expensive things. Uh, if you think of, of little pots of herbs, for instance, which will cost you a lot of money if you buy them in the supermarket, and I don't know what medium they use to grow these plants in, in the supermarket, but it certainly seems to be something that doesn't allow them to live too long and experiments with transplanting them into other growing materials doesn't always work. So this is expensive. I know here um, a little pot of basil, uh, a little pot of parsley, a little pot of mint, all these things, coriander, will all cost you about three pounds, three dollars, um, three euro, wherever you're living. The, the way world currencies go, it's impossible to line these up much at the moment. But um, it may cost more where you live, and they may not live very long. So if you're buying a couple of pots, uh, a couple or three pots a month, or more often than that, that that's money you can save by growing things yourself. Also, uh, you can grow things you can't get in the supermarket very easily. You, you may be living in a part of the world that's a long way away from where you come from originally or where your family come from and you might like to eat things they don't sell in the supermarket again with herbs this is particularly true I know in Britain there's lots of people whose grandparents even came from South Asia or the West Indies or, or West Africa and they like to grow some of the things that are traditional in their family's cuisine and growing them yourself on a windowsill can be a very good idea to do that now, I look every week at the map of the world uh, of where people listen to this podcast. And the majority of people are listening in North America, USA and Canada. Then comes Australia, New Zealand. And finally comes Europe. And I've just managed in the last couple of weeks to get some listeners in Africa and some in parts of different parts of Asia and also some in South America. So I think I'm now listening to on every continent except the Antarctic. But if there's anyone there in Antarctica that would like to listen, please let me know and I'll amend my records accordingly. Um, so I can't give general advice about what you can grow on your windowsill because there's lots of things I don't know. I don't know geographically where you are. I don't know how you are uh, facing, where your windows, whether they're north, south, east, west or a, uh, a mixture of any of those. And I don't know how wide your windowsills are. But so you are going to have to experiment. I will say that my experience of growing things, herbs in particular on window ledges in Europe, in Britain and in Sweden, is that some do better than others. Mint does fine. Chives do fine. Um, parsley will do fine. Coriander will do okay. Basil doesn't like it much here. It's just... A combination of heat and sunlight and basil requires quite a bit of both of those. I can grow it on my window ledges in the summer but in the winter it doesn't happen. It just if I can get the seeds to germinate I can either eat them as micro um, uh, plants or I can let them die slowly. But So we all have our areas of success and our areas of failure. So you've got to try. Now as well as windowsills, there's some other indoor growing ideas at the end. But some of you, even though you live in an apartment, may have access to a balcony or a doorstep. 
that faces the outside world. And if you have either of those things, you can grow plants on it. Balconies can be incredible. I'm amazed at how people manage to get as many pots as possible on their balcony and they can still manage to get a chair out there and sit out there among the greenery and they can be producing food and they can be producing flowers for pollinating insects. Now, I do believe you should do both. I'm not one of these people that think if you can't eat it, don't grow it. I do think you should grow um, flowering plants for pollinators, but sometimes you can do two things at once. For instance, if you grow any of the cucumber family, uh, you, the squashes, cucumbers, you can provide food for pollinating insects as well as providing food for yourself. The same thing goes with beans and peas. Pollinating insects will make a beeline for where your beans are growing and they get to take the nectar and pollinate the flower and they also get to provide you with some beans or some uh, peas later in the season. So be imaginative and I, I said in an earlier podcast that if you can imagine an ordinary um, city apartment block with balconies and if everybody in that apartment has filled their balcony with growing plants, they're probably producing more plants than you could on the area that that block was built on. So there is something you can do. You can help the environment. You can grow more of your own food. You can do all sorts of things like that. So do think about that. This podcast and all my podcasts are about ideas for you to make your life more simple. They're not specifically about giving you advice on doing things. If you need help, you can always get in contact with me. But there's plenty of information on the web about how to utilise a balcony. Now, some of you may live in an apartment but have access to roof space. And with pots and containers, you can grow an incredible amount on a roof. Two words of warning. One, check that the access to the roof for you to grow things in if you're in rented accommodation is actually okay with the landlord to use. If you own the land, make sure you'll have a word with your neighbours so you're not irritating them. But why any neighbour will be irritated uh, by you growing plants on your roof, uh, I don't know unless you're doing it noisily. But, you know, be respectful for your neighbours and, and do it quietly and get them involved, maybe. You will possibly have to watch two things. One, the weight of all those pots on the roof is going to be big, especially when they're wet. A lot of people pick up a, a pot when they've got soil in it and think, oh, that's not too heavy. But when they've been watering it for a few days and that water holds in the soil, it can double in, double in weight easily, if not more. So be careful. You may need to reinforce your roof. Now, the reinforcing will really be finding out where the strong points of the roof are, putting some um, battens in there and then putting some decking across it. Use your building skills. If you don't think your building skills are up to it, do get some advice. The carpentry involved is not difficult. Perhaps the worst thing is getting the planks of wood up onto the roof in the first place. But where there's a will, there's a way. I've seen a man in Brazil who has the most astonishing rooftop garden in the middle of Brasilia. So it can be done. And again, you have the same problems everybody else does with um, climate and with watering and rainfall and frost and all kinds of things like that. Pollinating insects will get there. And not only will pollinating insects get there, but lots of the 
nasty things you don't want, the slugs that will eat your crops, don't make it all the way up to the roof. So you may be very successful indeed in growing all sorts of things. So good luck with that. And if you are doing that, I'd like to hear from you and um, see how you're getting on. So windowsills, roofs and balconies, they will all grow something. You may still find that you want to grow more food. Now, in many parts of the world, particularly in English speaking parts of the world where this tradition grew up many hundreds of years ago, you can put your name down to get an allotment. Now, an allotment, for those of you that live in parts of the world where that term is not in use, is a small parcel of land, usually uh, owned by a local authority, not always. And they divide this up into plots and then they charge people every year a rent for that bit of land to grow food on. Now, I'm not an allotment holder now. That's the one thing on this list I don't do. But I have been in the past um, when I lived in, in Berkshire in, uh, in England. I had an allotment there for several years and it was good. There were problems. One of the problems with allotments is I, I'm a bit funny about advice. You know, I like advice when I ask for it. I don't like people to give me constant non-stream advice that is unsolicited. I find that patronising and irritating to the extreme. If you want to know something, you can ask somebody. You can look in a book. You can go on the internet. It's easier to get information than any other time in the history of the world at the moment. And yet, as soon as you set foot on allotment, somebody will come on and say, oh, you don't want to be doing it that way. I wouldn't grow that variety. You don't want to grow that here. You want to try that somewhere else. All of these things are set to annoy me and they may annoy you too. So the best thing you can do on your allotment is get yourself some earphones, fairly visible ones in bright red or something. Put them in your ears. Now you don't have to be listening to an audio book or music. You can be listening to nothing. But if anyone comes up and starts giving you advice, you just wave at them and then bend down and get on with it again. You don't know. I'm not suggesting you're unsociable. And lots of the work on allotments is about sharing seeds and sharing produce even and sharing plants. Somebody say, oh, I've just planted all these cabbages and I've got some left. You will find the nice, helpful people right away. You will also identify the busybodies right away. And it's up to you and your personality how you deal with these people. But don't let the experience be spoilt by people telling you what to do all the time. Now, the, the, the problem with the allotments that I did have when I had them was pests were pretty rampant. Uh, you can live, or live, you can garden a couple of plots away from somebody that hasn't looked after their plot. And there will be slugs and rats and mice and all sorts living in it. So... Look for, you can't have a choice on where your allotment is, it's got to be fairly close to your home or it defeats the object, but look for things that are fairly um, close to you and try and, if you know, try and get an allotment to a There are some of these in Britain that are wonderful. You just see maybe 40, even 50 plots and everybody's looking after them really well and it's a wonderful thing. So do think carefully about an allotment. If you think an allotment is more work than you yourself can take on because some of you I know are living busy lives and some of you are living with um, disabilities 
or other reasons, commitments that don't allow you to spend as much time as you would like on an allotment, well, Radical Simple Living is inclusive. You can be inclusive, include somebody else. Find a neighbour, find a family member who wants to come in with you and share the allotment. Share the work, share the produce. That will be the thing. Now, sometimes the waiting list is a long time for allotment, so if you don't get on the list, you're not going to get one, so get on the list now. If, when the time comes, it might take a year or two before your name comes up, if you don't feel in the position of taking it then, you can have a word with the um, allotment distributor and say, well, look, I'm not ready this year, can I, can I be considered next year and let somebody else have this one? And I'm sure they'll listen to you. Now, the other thing you might like to try, and again, this is very big in a lot of cities. Um, one of my daughters lives in Brighton, and I happen to know that Brighton has a lot of community gardening going on in it. That's Brighton in the UK, by the way. Um, community gardens are where a piece of land, either owned by a community or given by a local authority or donated for a period of time, it may be a piece of land that is destined to be built on in a decade's time, but at the moment is there and can be growing food for you. Community gardens run on two ways. One is by dividing it up into plots, which is uh, fairly like allotments. And the other one is everybody works in together and according to the hours of work you put in, you get a share of the, of the proceedings in terms of crops and food. These can work wonderfully if you get on with people and if you're in with a nice community garden, it can work wonderfully. If there are no community gardens, where you live in some parts of the world, you can go to a local authority and say, I want to set up a community garden. Have you got anywhere I can do it? And I know in some parts of the world, people have been successful with this and the local authority has come up with a piece of land and you can use it. It might not be the best land in the world, but in a way, any land is better than no land. It may be on very stony soil and you have to use raised beds. It may be on... Uh, lots of woodland around it whatever you get you can grow food but you've got to be clever and you've got to experiment and you've got to accept that it isn't all going to happen that quickly okay if you start gardening you will get some crops the first year you will get more the second year the better your soil gets the better you get at what you're doing it will improve as years go by now there's another really interesting scheme which I, I first heard from on a television programme with Hugh Fernley-Whittingstoller, a kind of, uh, well, he is a celebrity, but he's a very green celebrity cook-cum-gardener. And he had a scheme going where he was living in the West Country at the time, where old people that could no, I should say elderly people, I'm sorry, elderly people who could no longer manage to look after their garden but didn't want to move house and didn't want to give up their garden, could form an arrangement with a younger person with maybe more um, energy or more time to garden for them. So they've got a nice big garden at the back of their house. The idea is somebody with a bit more energy and a bit more time comes in, does the gardening and splits the produce. Now, how you split the produce is, is up to you to negotiate. If it's a single old person living on their own and you're a family of four, 
I think you could grow lots of food and they will be happy with their share and you could do quite well of it. But this does mean that you can have access to a fairly sizable garden and it may have been gardened very well and very successfully um, in the recent past and you can get food from it. Now make inquiries where you live if this would interest you and find out and if there's no scheme you can always advertise you can always put a little card in a, a, a shop window or something like that explaining what you would like to do or nowadays you can put up a little blog post explaining what you want to do and see what can do things can go wrong yes um, sometimes the relatives of the elderly person aren't too keen on it so you have to have talks you have to negotiate you have to make sure it's okay but uh, to me this is a wonderful scheme that could help everybody it helps the elderly in getting them fresh food and getting them to think that their garden is good and of course if they're still able to go and sit in their garden and watch you work they might be able to help to some extent but you will do the majority of the work and you will share the produce and again can I remind you when you have a garden you're not just growing for yourself for food you also have a responsibility on land to grow flowers the kind of flowers that a pollinator can get into big open flowers are the best where you can actually see the pollen and you also should be leaving parts of your garden in the corner just to go wild and let wildlife live there you know it's it's the planet belongs to every species that's on it so don't be selfish let let some of your garden be wild so things can live in it now um shared gardening community gardening allotments all of them work well the next thing i have to suggest is gorilla gardening that's gorilla not gorilla by the Guerrilla gardening, some people think is illegal. It is not. Obviously, some guerrilla gardeners grow illegal drugs and all sorts of things like that on land. So that would have its own legal um, restrictions depending on where you live. But if you want to grow vegetables uh, and fruit, there are very few rules about where you can grow things. You know, if you want to put a tomato plant in a piece of wasteland, I don't think there's any rule, there's any law. You're not going to go to prison for it. Somebody might come along and say, you can't do that here. But that's a mild chastisement. And I think if you're truly a radical, simple living advocate, mild chastisements are going to be the least of your problems. Now, where can you grow things and what can you grow? I should say, first of all, that there are two dangers to um, gorilla gardening. One is you can't grow edible things too close to major roads. You can grow flowers if there's a, a bit of uh, you know land close to a road that nobody's growing anything and you want to go and spread some wildflower seeds do. Make sure they're native species by the way. Please don't grow exotics on road verges and things like that. It doesn't help anybody. And if you're serious about rewilding, rewilding doesn't mean turning um, your locality into a botanical garden or a zoo. It means restoring things that would have been growing there. So do your research, first of all. It, often in my case, it's a case of collecting seeds one year and then re-sowing them 
a little bit further away. So they grow in the locality and you're not doing too much to disturb um, the ecosystem. If you grow food close to a road, uh, several things happen. This goes too for if you're growing it on your doorstep or on a balcony. A lot of people worry about pollutants and them getting on your food. Now, I can say this to you, and I, I am a chemist, so I know about pollutants. I, I, I've uh, studied them for many years. I can tell you this. If you grow too close to a road, your produce will be covered in something called urban dust. Now, urban dust isn't a compound. Urban dust is a pretty terrifying mixture. And it's made up of all sorts of things. Most of it, surprisingly, is made up of the dust that comes from tyres. And tyres aren't the cleanest of things. They're full of heavy metals. They're full of all kinds of nasty additives to stop the rubber from perishing and to make it last long. And as cars go on roads, the urban dust gets mixed up with the natural dust of the road and it blows over everything. Now, fruit is very good at not absorbing things from the air. Things will sit on the surface, but things won't be absorbed into the fruit. The particle size of urban dust is actually quite large. So if you see an apple tree growing uh, not far from a road and there's lots of apples and they're falling off and nobody wants them, yeah, eat the apples, but take them home and wash them first. Wash them twice, that way they're going to be fit to eat. If you find roots growing in soil, you can usually eat those with impunity. I don't know anybody that's going to dig up roots. Occasionally things like horseradish grow at the, you know, not far from roads, so you can properly do that. When it comes to leaves, you've got to be much more careful because if you remember from your biology lessons at school that the underside of leaves are covered with lots of little holes called stomata. And these stomata have cells either side of them called guard cells, which when the conditions are right, swell up and open up and allow air to pass into the leaf. And then other times they will close up. Now, the stomata are quite large. You can, you can actually see them uh, with quite a low power magnification. And dust particles get into stomata. So if you're going to go and collect leaves, make sure you do them a long way away from where you're harvesting that from the roads. You can harvest them from hedgerows, you can harvest them from corners of fields. Again, they will need washing because animals may have urinated on them or all sorts of things. Wash them carefully, but you can use them. Nettles, I eat a lot of nettles, and you always go for nettles a little way away from anywhere where they're going to be polluted, and then you can eat them. Now, if your local authority sprays things, you want to be careful of that too. You don't want to be harvesting food a week or so after it was sprayed. That's not a good idea. If you're going to be planting things yourself, what kind of things can you plant? Well, there's a second thing I have to warn you of, and I'll tell you what you can grow first, and I'll give you the second warning. You can grow tomato plants. You can grow beans. You can grow cabbages. You can grow spinach, you can grow lettuce, you can grow a whole range of things. Find the right place, plant the seeds, come and look after them now and then. Now, nothing, of course, is going to stop somebody else. If somebody else comes across your tomato plants and there's loads of ripening tomatoes on and they decide to harvest them for you and take them home and eat them, 
there is nothing you can do about it. It's not your land. And as soon as you plant your tomato plant on it, the tomato plant no longer belongs to you. It's growing on this land and it belongs to whoever the landowner is. So if you are gorilla gardening, you either have to shrug if somebody eats all your crop and say better luck next time. The real trick is to choose a fairly secluded spot. Choose it a long way from anywhere else and, and, and spread, you know, have four or five different plots you will visit. It can be very lucrative. If you have bits growing, bits of land that are near your house that you can gain access to regularly, you can plant fruit bushes in there. Supermarkets sometimes sell off fruit bushes, black currants, red currants, gooseberries, raspberries, blackberries. They sell these off very cheap and you can find a piece of land near your house and plant them and you could be getting fruit from those for years. So well worth thinking about doing that, Gorilla Gardening. Again, um, there's lots of websites to do this. There's lots of organisations. There's lots of pages on Facebook and elsewhere so you can find out more about it. Now, the next thing that we've already touched on a bit because I gave that away is foraging. And foraging can be very productive indeed. And if you live in an inner city apartment or house and you haven't got a garden, in autumn, make sure every weekend that you get out to rural areas and you start picking. You start picking wild berries, the ones that grow where you live. Make sure you know what they are first. Find out. It's simple. You can be foraging for fungi. Now, a lot of people in some parts of the world worry about fungi. Here in Sweden, fungi foraging is so popular. Almost everybody does it and people get to know what they can pick because it's been taught to them by parents and grandparents. If you're wary about what you're eating, find out if there's a course close by you where somebody, an expert, can tell you what's fit to eat and what's not. And my experience is a lot of people worry about finding all the ones that are good to eat. I think the first lesson in fungi foraging is find out the deadly ones so you don't eat them. Now, there are also nuts. There are bigger fruits, apples, pears that you can forage for. Uh, you're only stealing them, by the way, if they're from a cultivated crop that somebody's got. If it's a, an apple tree growing on wasteland, um, help yourself. Um, yeah, if you live on the coast and you eat shellfish, you can forage for shellfish. Again, you have to worry about pollution, so be careful that you get it somewhere clean. But I know a lot of people that get a lot of their food by walking along the seashore with a bucket. Indeed, that was a living for many people up until the early decades of the 20th century. So foraging is good. Foraging is a way of life for some people. And as long as you've got a kitchen where you can process these things. Fungi, I, I got a couple of years ago, a big mesh basket, it's a concertina. You can fold it up and it's just a big circle. And then you can stretch it out and it concertinas into a fly-proof uh, mesh with shelving in. And I hang this up in my kitchen in the autumn with the fire on and slice up fungi and dry them. And you could do the same thing with fruit. In the summer, you can hang it up outside. And again, the breeze and the sunlight will dry it and flies can't get into it. It works very, very well. It's probably one of the best bits of equipment I've ever invested in. It cost me about $15 or 15 euros or whatever currency you use where you are. 
15 is the magic number unless you're in Sweden when it's 150. Um, but uh, drying food by that mechanism is easy. When you're not drying, you concentrate it up and you put it away. It's a wonderful piece of equipment. Um, if you get one of those, you can take full advantage of lots of foraging or blackberries and other fruits and fungi and you can dry them at home and you can store them in jars and you will have the joy of knowing that you're eating food that you wouldn't be eating if you hadn't taken the trouble to produce it yourself. That's just not advice for people without gardens. That's good advice for people with gardens too. Next is the idea of seed sprouting. Now, some people do sprout seeds all the time and some people don't. If you don't, give it a try. Now, you can sprout seeds in jars with a mesh over the top and you constantly rinse them and turn them out. You can grow them in these sort of specially manufactured um, plastic, I'm afraid. Um, it's, it's reusable. I've had this one I've got here for years now. Um, columns where you put seeds on different levels and run water through them. I tried dozens of them. I'm not selling this. I'm not making any money out of it. But the best one is the basis sitting in my hand now. It's made projects, uh, sorry, products of the USA. It's called Kitchen Crop and it's Victorio. I'm not sure if Victorio is the company. I think they are and Kitchen Crop is the product. This is good. It's very simple. It's very easy to clean. I soak seeds, I put them in there, I run water through it two, three times a day and it provides me with a ready crop of greens all the way through the winter. Now if you've tried sprouting seeds and you don't think you like them, can I advise you that there are thousands of different seeds you can sprout and just like any other vegetable, some you will like more than others. So keep working on it until you find those that you like. If you ignore your sprouting seeds, they will go mouldy, so you've got to keep them handy. Got to pause here to let a cat in. Okay, um, if you like your sprouting seeds fairly mild flavoured, keep them dark. Keep them dark and they don't develop such strong flavours. If you like them, as I do, green and very flavoursome, let them have light. I grow them here all the way through the winter. I usually stop in summer because there's enough greenery coming from the garden. But all winter I grow them and there's nothing nicer than a, a hummus and seed sprout sandwich. It's wonderful. You can grow these anywhere. You don't even need a window ledge. Anywhere will do. An electric light bulb will be enough light to green them up. And they are fantastic. So do try sprouting seeds. Now, a lot of people think it's expensive because they buy their seeds in seed packets from seed merchants. So if they want to grow mustard, they buy a little envelope with mustard seeds in and it doesn't actually provide them with that much. Here's the trick. Find yourself in your town or somewhere around a South Asian supermarket. Now, everywhere in Europe has South Asian supermarkets in and uh, I imagine it's the same in big cities in the States. If you go there, you can buy big 500 gram packs of mustard seeds for a quarter of the price you pay for a little packet. And as long as they've got a good date on and your Asian supermarket has a good turnover of stock, they will be fine for sprouting. So you can get mustard seed that way, you can get onion seed that way, which is really good and really worth sprouting. Not a lot of people do onion seeds, but they're very good. You can get 
fenugreek, you can get alfalfa, you get all things in a, in a South Asian supermarket in food packets and you can eat some of them uh, and cook them or and you can sprout some of them. They won't last forever. And if you have too many dead seeds in the in the lot you're trying to sprout, it spoils the flavour and encourages mould. So make sure you're using fresh seeds, but buy them very, very cheaply. Um, and that will supplement your diet almost any time. If you live in the city, you can do that all year round. If you've got access to a garden, you probably only want to do it in the winter months, but it's good. Now, the final thing that I want to say before I finish with this idea, here's the cat that just came in. He now wants to get on my laptop here. I don't think you can do that. Not now, a bit later, okay? Um, the other thing you can do is help with your food production. Of course, food production isn't just growing the food. Food production also means preserving food. We've already spoken about drying. But you can, even if you live in the city and even if you've um, got no garden, you can still go to farmers markets. You can even go to supermarkets, buy things when they're in season and cheap, bring them home, pickle them, can them, bottle them, dry them, freeze them, do all these things. It's not as good as growing your own food, but it's still going to save you a lot of money. Now, I, I grow my own mushrooms here, uh, at some times of the year very successfully, at other times not so easily. I also forage mushrooms. My son is a, my youngest son is a keen mushroom forager, and I dry them. Um, but sometimes in the local supermarket, around late September and October, the price of loose mushrooms just collapses to nothing. So uh, $3 a kilogram, that's, uh, that's about you know $1.50 a pound. Uh, you can buy, and that's a lot of mushrooms, <laughs> a lot of mushrooms in that much. What I do is I buy a couple of kilograms of mushrooms. I cut them up. The best ones get cut up for drying in this mesh thing that I told you about earlier. And the not so fresh ones I eat. I, I make a soup or a stew out of or fry or do anything with. I love mushrooms. So you can do the same thing. There are times when you can get fruit and vegetables very, very cheaply. Farmers markets, if you go to a farmers market near the end of the day, especially those farmers markets that are only there once a week, the stallholder may be left with loads of produce they don't want to take back with them and they can't sell them, so they will offload them to you very, very cheaply. I'm not suggesting you try and do these good people out of their hard-earned living, pay a fair price for them, but they will often give it to you for much cheaper than it was um, early that morning when they opened their stall up. You can go home with lots of strawberries. You can make jam out of them. You can make a puree out of them. You can freeze them. You can do all sorts of things. You will find uh, onions, leeks, all of which are suitable for storing at home. If you've got the space, you can do it. Now, where can you store bottled, jarred, pickles, canned goods? You can store them anywhere. The lid goes on tight. They're safe. What you have got to watch out for is frost. Because if there's a lot of liquid in the jar and it gets frosty and it expands, it can crack the jar, especially as your jars are full up. There's no space in them, really. And they will crack it. 
So if you want to store them in an outdoor shed, they will be mouse-proof, they will be insect-proof, there's no problem. But if you live in a part of the world where you get heavy frost, you cannot do that, in wintertime anyway. There's a couple I watch on YouTube who have a tiny house in Alaska, and they have just stacked there, they're sitting with stacks of preserved goods all over the place. It's up to you. It will save you money. It will help you have food for when bad things happen, like lockdowns, like incredible price hikes in food, like warning of something happening and everybody rushes to the supermarket and empties the shelves. You can have a store of food at home, which you should have. We don't live in the Middle Ages anymore, but we do live in a difficult time where bad things happen. Bad things in terms of politically bad things, in terms of climatic bad things. And uh, I have to mention that the, the terrible circumstances, I know this is not a topical podcast, podcast but um, the floods in Christchurch in New Zealand, uh, terrible. You know, people weren't expecting this. Bad things happen all over the world and you can be best protected by making sure that you're ready with some stored food. And if that stored food is stuff that you have bottled and canned and pickled yourself, that's great. I'm sorry I've gone on for a long time. You may have guessed that food production is something that I am fascinated by. It's, it, 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 it's wonderful. And my enthusiasm for it, if I spread some of that to you and you start doing it, I'll be happy. So thank you for listening. Do remember to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Um, if you think this podcast might be of use to somebody you know, please pass on the details to them. Thank you and goodbye.